Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. And we look at what is most likely one of the more familiar events in all of the Bible, and that is the crucifixion of Christ. At this point in the Gospel of John, as we have studied over the last recent weeks, and everything that we've looked up to thus far, we focus our attention on the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus has completed both his Jewish religious trial and his Roman secular trial, each of which had three separate phases, six phases over about a 12-hour period. In the Jewish trial, the religious leaders violated basically every law they had that related to a capital offense case, and they did so in order to impose upon Jesus a verdict of guilty apart from any evidence that was ever presented and in light of the false testimony that they had secured on their behalf. When there were no viable witnesses to testify against Jesus, they rounded up false witnesses who would then make inaccurate accusations against him, and they never were challenged or questioned in any way. In the end, in this religious trial, Jesus admitted that he was the Son of God, and for that admission... They accused him of blasphemy and sent him to Pilate for his Roman secular trial since they did not have the ability to put him to death themselves. So Jesus has marched off first to Annas, the old high priest, excuse me, to Pilate, who is the governor over the province of Judea. He's also examined by Herod Antipas, who is the ruler over Palestine, And in their three examinations, neither one of them ever found Jesus deserving of death. He was not guilty of anything in their eyes. And so they continued to impose a verdict of not guilty, but in an effort to placate the religious leaders, Pilate had Jesus scourged, a beating that would often kill those who were succumbed to it, But that wasn't enough. The religious leaders were relentless in their pursuit of and desire for Jesus' execution. And so they coerced Pilate into killing Jesus with the threat of reporting him to Caesar, who at this point was Tiberius. And what they would report to Tiberius is that Pilate did not punish a man who claimed to be king and was leading a revolt against Jerusalem and Rome's rule over it. So with that, Pilate saw that he had no other option except to give in to the desires of the religious leaders, and then he followed through with their request and had Jesus crucified. So in Pilate's mind, it was better for this man to die than it would be for him to lose his position as a governor under the Roman rule. And that leads us now to John chapter 19, verses 17 through 30. And we'll read John's account of the crucifixion. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. 
Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers then had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when he had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And so here we have, at this point in the Gospel of John, we have the climax of redemptive history. The hour had finally come. Jesus had alluded to his hour all throughout his public ministry, saying the hour is not yet at hand. But here we have the hour that is finally here. One author writes these words. He says, it is for this moment that the whole of the Bible has been preparing us. From the time of the fall throughout the whole Old Testament revelation, God was leading His people towards that day when He would send a Savior and through Him bring about salvation for all time. Similarly, from the moment of the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary right through to the climax of His ministry in Jerusalem, the Gospels have been preparing us for this, His death and everything it would achieve. We have to remember and understand that in eternity past, a point that we can't even begin to imagine with our own finite minds, God had established this plan of redemption and had looked forward to this very moment and all that Jesus' death on the cross would accomplish. And it is at this very point, the hour has come and the focal point of the plan of salvation is accomplished. Now there's two critical truths that we must remember about the cross. Number one, the cross is the supreme expression of love. There is no greater expression of love than what we find right here at the cross. We hear very noble stories of individuals who risk and sometimes lose their lives in the hope of saving someone else, whether it be a drowning man or a car that's on fire or something else, this and this alone is the supreme expression of love because it encapsulates God's redeeming love to a people in desperate need of reconciliation. It is God doing for us 
what he didn't have to do, and God doing for us what we could never accomplish on our own. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So not only is Jesus' death on the cross the supreme expression of love because it is God's redemptive love expressed to the world, we must remember that this is Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect, sinless man who had done no wrong, who was declared not guilty in his Roman trial at the hands of those who would finally execute him. He lived a moral and just and upright life, obeying God at every turn, and yet here he is, the Lamb of God, taking away the sin of the world. Secondly, the cross is the ultimate expression of man's depravity. Although it is God's chosen plan to accomplish redemption on behalf of those that He has called to Himself, it is also sin against this divine being. Hebrews 12.3 says this, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, tried, convicted, and killed, simply for being who He claimed to be. The bread of life, the good shepherd, the light of the world, given over by sinful men to die on the cross, although He had done nothing worthy of His death. We must always remember the two sides of the coin of the cross. It is God's love and it is man's depravity. It is man's depravity that is in need of this redeeming love. And it is man's depravity that has driven Jesus to the cross as they put this sinless man on this place of brutal death simply because he was who he claimed to be. Now, as we look at the Gospel of John and the account of the crucifixion, Rather than weaving the narrative through the other Gospel accounts, I'm going to stick very closely to the Gospel of John, and we're going to see seven events or pictures of the cross. Each of these pictures will be a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy or an allusion to a prophecy in Scripture. The first one is Jesus bearing His own cross. We read in verse 17, They took Jesus therefore, and He went out bearing His own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Now, it's somewhat surprising to me that neither John nor the other Gospel writers go into much detail at all about the pain and suffering that Jesus went through at the hands of the Romans through the scourging and through the actual event of crucifixion. Matthew describes the wickedness of the crucifixion in the most detail, but even he falls short of detailing specifically the kind of pain and suffering that Jesus went through. I'm not going to do that either, but I will tell you this. Death on a cross was the most brutal form of death that man had ever known. It was designed to inflict as much pain as absolutely possible without bringing a quick death to the individual 
who was going to be victimized by it. It was said by Roman historians that crucifixion was so gruesome and so brutal that they would never impose that upon a Roman citizen unless it came as a decree from Caesar himself. This kind of death was only given out to foreigners or insurrectionists or others who created such difficulty for Roman rule that it seemed like it was the best way to demonstrate a point of the supreme power that the Romans held and you don't dare stand up against that power. So when Jesus was actually crucified, the beam would already be in the ground. They would lay him across the beam that he would carry. They would sometimes tie the hands to the crossbeam. But as we know from the Gospel accounts, Jesus' hands were nailed to the crossbeam. And then they would raise that beam up by rope and get it into his final resting place. They would then nail the feet to the cross. And they would sometimes put some kind of a stool that an individual could sit on, and that would enable them to breathe. It wasn't designed to be compassionate. It was designed to stretch death out as much as it possibly could. So Jesus is now in the process of being crucified. And what we look at when we see that Jesus is bearing his own cross, there are at least three Old Testament symbols or typologies that are very easily understood from this account. Letter A is the lamb led to slaughter. Verse 17a, they took Jesus therefore and he went out. You know, as you go back and read the gospel accounts, at every point that Jesus was confronted by those in authority, whether they be Roman and secular or Jewish and religious, Jesus was a willing participant in his arrest, in his travel to the high priest, in his travel back and forth to Pilate and to Herod. He was a willing participant in this whole affair. From the time of his arrest in the garden through the trials, although Jesus is still in control, he is willingly submitting himself to the Father's plan. Isaiah 53, 7 would say this, as the great messianic or the suffering servant passage, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Now I would bet to say that if you or I were being unjustly led to a place of execution, we would be kicking, we would be screaming, we would be doing everything that we possibly could to slow this down or to even stop it, but that is not what Jesus did at all. Like the lamb led to slaughter, he was led out to the place of his execution. Let her be another typology that we can see here is Isaac carrying his own wood. Verse 17b Jesus, is let, Jesus went out bearing his own cross. Now, it was standard procedure in a Roman crucifixion for a man to be forced to carry on his shoulders the crossbeam that he would eventually be affixed to as before it was raised up into its final resting place. So this heavy beam was placed upon the shoulders and they would be marched through the street to much mocking and much ridicule 
And this is exactly what Jesus was expected to do. We know from the other gospel accounts that Simon the Cyrene was pressed into service because Jesus was so weakened by the scourging that he had endured that he was not able to complete the journey to Golgotha with a beam on his back. But it's also unmistakable to recognize the similarities of little Isaac, the young boy, who has got on his back a, stra- a, a, a batch of firewood, and he is walking obediently and willingly with his father to the place that God was going to show him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. You know, Isaac wasn't kicking and screaming. Isaac wasn't questioning. He simply said, where is the sacrifice that Abraham said God will provide? So in the same way, well, we read this in Genesis 22.6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his, in his hand the fire and the knife, and so the two of them walked on together. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing as he walked through the streets with the beam upon his back. He was walking with the Father according to this eternal plan of redemption to bring about the reconciliation of sinful man to a holy and a righteous God. Letter C, sin offering is taken out of the camp. Now the last part of verse 17, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now it isn't really known where Golgotha is. There's a lot of speculation about it. This is also known in Latin as Calvary, which is why it's called Calvary in our songs in some places in the scripture. But what is, what is known about this location is that it is outside the city limits of Jerusalem. Jesus is being taken out of the city, and this fills the typological sacrificial practice that was exemplified within the Old Testament. In Exodus 29.14, but, the, but burn the bull's flesh and its hide and its refuse outside the camp. It is a sin offering. And so this offering was never offered on the altar of God. It was taken outside of the city limits and it was consumed as a sin offering to God the Father. Well, Jesus is the ultimate sin offering to the Father, and just like in the Old Testament practice, he's taken out of the city limits in order for the sacrifice to be finalized. Now the second picture or the second event we see related to the cross here is Jesus being crucified with sinners. Verse 18 says, There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Matthew identifies these two individuals as robbers. Some speculate that these might actually be co-conspirators with Barabbas, but that's purely speculation. But there's a very stark contrast with Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God, hanging on a cross between two convicted robbers, Jesus being crucified with a sinful criminal, is also part of an Old Testament prophecy. Again, in Isaiah 53, as a part of the suffering servant passage, in verse 12 it says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the body boot, excuse me, the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and yet, excuse me, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So here is Jesus 
as alluded to in the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, hanging on a cross in the middle of two men who were criminals and convicted of their crimes. Jesus is innocent of any crime. There was no valid charge that was brought against him. He is called by the gospel writers, and by faith we believe them to be true, that he was sinless perfection in absolutely every way, and here he is hanging on a cross dying, even though Pilate declared him to be not guilty six different times, Jesus is crucified with sinners. John reveals through his narrative not a humiliated Christ dying with criminals, but an exalted Christ fulfilling the prophecy of God. The men that he was dying with, he was dying for. Think about that. The men that he is dying with, the men who are responsible for putting him on the cross, is the very man that he is dying for. In a twist of irony, Luke records that one of the men who was dying with Jesus called out to him asking for mercy and acknowledged his own guilt and his own deserved nature for death. And Jesus responded in Luke 23, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus saving one of the men that he was dying with, because that's what he came to do. He came to save those that were dead in their sins. The third event or picture we see is Jesus' title on the cross. Verse 19, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Now, it was a very common practice for the crime that the individual committed to be inscribed on some kind of a placard. It would be worn around his neck as he was paraded through the streets. And once he was brought to the place of crucifixion, it would be nailed to the cross for all to see the crime that was committed. And this served as a deterrent to crime, But Pilate uses the Jewish leader's accusation against him as the alleged crime, not their false claim of insurrection or leading a revolt or anything else. Verse 20 goes on to say, Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So Pilate had the charge, Jesus Nazarene, the king of the Jews, written in the three primary languages of Palestine. This way, most everybody who would pass Jesus on the cross would be able to read the claim that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, if you were to compare the inscription in the other Gospels, you would see minor variations in the inscription, and that is likely attributed to the fact that it was inscribed in three different languages. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John may have chosen one of those three inscriptions as a part of their recording of the narrative of Jesus on the cross. So in verse 21, it says, The chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And of course, to that, Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now, the Jewish leaders objected to this inscription for three reasons. Number one, 
They rejected him as king of the Jews. To them, Jesus wasn't king of the Jews. And they didn't want that claim to be put on the inscription for all to see. They never wanted anybody to think that that was the actual king of the Jews hanging dead on a Roman cross, dying the despicable death of crucifixion. They only wanted him to be identified as a false claimant to being the king of the Jews. Secondly, as Jesus of Nazareth, if you remember very early in our study of of the Gospel of John, Nazareth was a town that was on the wrong side of the tracks for the Jewish religious elite. If you came from Nazareth, you were a nobody. You would never amount to anything. They would look down their self-righteous noses upon them. They would never hold a place of office. They were the wrong kind of people. Not quite as bad as the Samaritans, but pretty close. And they didn't want this designation of Jesus from this crummy place of Nazareth to be associated with the king of the Jews. Thirdly, they understood that Pilate was insulting them with this inscription, much like he did when he presented the bloodied and the battered Jesus fresh from his scourging and said, Behold your king. It was an insult to put on the placard that was going to hang with Jesus on the cross that he was the king of the Jews. Pilate didn't believe for a moment that Jesus was the king of the Jews, but the religious leaders had rejected him as king, and therefore they didn't want anything attributed to this claim to be associated with this individual who was dead on the cross. Pilate would not relent at this point and very simply said, what I have written I have written. Now, what Pilate intended as an insult in all the major languages of Palestine that Jesus is the King of the Jews is in fact a clear announcement of God's eternal plan of redemption to the world through Christ on the cross. There's a very loose allusion to this in Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is, firm, the firm, is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. So the instrument of torture, the cross, is in fact a throne of redemptive glory for all the world to see and for all the world to know that this is in fact the king of the Jews and the salvation of the world is going to come through Yahweh's Messiah who is in fact the king of the Jews. Now the fourth picture or event we see on the cross is Jesus' clothes as a prize. Verse 23. When the sold, excuse me, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece. So the insensitivity of the soldiers is seen here. They want to profit from the man who is dying and has been stripped naked. He is likely gasping for air, bleeding out the last drops of his blood, and here they are, divvying up amongst themselves Jesus' belongings. So there are four soldiers that are tasked with carrying out the crucifixion order, very likely the ones that actually raised the beam into its final resting place, and it is most likely the four pieces of clothing that are referenced here 
one divided into each individual, would represent the common garb of anybody who lived in Palestine in those days. It would be some kind of a headpiece, it would be a belt, it would be sandals, and then the outer robe. So we don't know how those pieces of Jesus got to the place of the cross, but it is most likely those four things that have already been divvied up amongst the four soldiers who are there. But you also see that there is this tunic. This tunic is a one-piece garment that was worn very close to the body. It was woven and it was seamless, and it was a much more valuable piece. And rather than ripping that into four equal parts, they decided then that they were going to cast lots to see who, would be, who was going to get this valuable garment that was left to divvy out amongst themselves. So verse 24a, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. So the lots were something like dice, but different from that. And it was through the casting of lots that the individual would win this tunic, which was the most valuable piece of Jesus' possessions that were there at the cross. So rather than dividing it equally and ruining it, they decided to cast lots and keep it in whole, uh, keep it as a whole. Verse 24b, this was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So in the Messianic Psalm of Psalm 22, we read this, they divide my garments amongst them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 25a, therefore the soldiers did these things. Now it would be beyond silly to think that these Roman soldiers knew anything about Jewish prophecy and knew that it was required in order to fulfill Jewish prophecy that they were going to cast lots, as Psalm 22 mentions. They simply did what came natural to them and by doing so fulfilled this piece of scripture that was written hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. This verifies that God is sovereign and in control and that his plan is being carried out to absolute perfection as his one and only son is dying on the cross to provide the redemption of mankind. So in contrast to the soldiers who are callously dividing up the spoils of the dying man Jesus, we have the women now who are gathered around and we see number five, the fifth event or picture at the cross in John and that is Jesus' concern for his mother. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. So the great contrast is these Roman soldiers dividing up the remaining possessions of Jesus while his mother... And these three other Marys and John, the beloved gospel, watching in horror as Jesus is breathing his last breaths on the cross. Make no mistake, this is is the horror that they could never have envisioned happening. They still very likely believed that Jesus was the Messiah and they believed that the Messiah was going to be a physical political ruler who is going to reestablish the independent rule of Israel in Jerusalem. 
But beyond that, there is my son. There is my savior. There is this person that I love with every ounce of my life dying on a cross while these Roman soldiers are trying to decide who gets what from Jesus' possession. You know, they didn't understand Jesus' self-fulfilling prophecies that he would be lifted up and that the Son of Man was going to die. That the Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I wonder what Mary was thinking. I wonder if she remembered what Simeon said to her some 30 years earlier when Jesus was presented at the temple on the eighth day for a cir- on the seventh day for a circumcision. We read in Luke 2, 34 and 35, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul. I would imagine that when Mary heard those words for the first time, there was a lot of confusion and question about what that actually meant. And here it is, Jesus dying on the cross. Verse 27, as Jesus is preparing to breathe his last, he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. So from the cross, Jesus gives to John the responsibility to care for his mother. The phrase, behold your son and behold your mother, were commonly used in non-legal adoption ceremonies. It was a way to informally transfer responsibility from one party to another for the care of the mother or of a child. John's editorial note here that he took her into his own household indicates that both mother and John did exactly as Jesus had prescribed. Now, Jesus had several half-brothers and other half-sisters who, were, who had been born by Mary to her other husband. It's widely believed that Joseph had died sometime in Jesus' childhood and that she had remarried in the Gospels account for Jesus' half-brothers accompanying him here and there. But Jesus, as the firstborn son, had within the Hebrew way of life the responsibility to care for his mother. So at the moment of his death, he is now delegating that responsibility to John, because that is his responsibility to take. And at this point, none of Jesus' half-brothers had yet, had yet announced faith in him as Savior. This would not come until after Jesus' resurrection, and is, it is then recorded in the book of Acts. Now, it's unfortunate but important to note this in the narrative that we have here in John. This is John caring for the widowed Mary, This is not John coming under the authority of Mary and her becoming the mother of the church as some Catholic theologians suppose. Now, we ask ourselves the questions, how do the Catholics get some of the beliefs that they have and from where do they come in Scripture? This is one of the places in Scripture that gives to the Catholic church an unreasonable responsibility 
to Mary as the mother of the one and only Son of God. So what most would understand this to be is a delegation of responsibility from Jesus to John to care for his mother, but the Catholic Church has inverted that, and they've seen this as Mary becoming over the authority of John. John MacArthur summarizes it this way. Mary was a woman of singular virtue, or she would never have been chosen to be the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that role, she deserves respect and honor. But she was a sinner who exalted God, her Savior. She referred to herself as a humble bond slave to God who needed mercy. This went all the way back in Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel appeared to her and she submitted herself to the plan of God the Father. MacArthur goes on to say, to offer prayers to Mary and elevate her to a role as co-redemptrix with Christ is to go beyond the bounds of Scripture and her own confession. The silence of the epistles, which is the remaining documents outside of the Gospels in the New Testament, which form the doctrinal core of, of the New Testament about Mary, is especially significant. If she played the important role in salvation assigned her by the Roman Catholic Church, or if she were to receive prayers as an intercessor between believers and Christ, surely the New Testament would have spelled that out. Nor do such Roman Catholic teachings as her virgin birth and bodily assumption into heaven find any biblical support. In the final moments of Jesus' life, he transfers the care of his mother from himself to his beloved disciple, John. So it's unfortunate that this gets mixed all in at this point in the narrative of Jesus dying on the cross, but it's important for us to recognize what Jesus was doing. He was giving responsibility for the well-being of his mother to John. He was not giving Mary authority over John. The Roman Catholic Church has completely inverted this and created it to become something that it clearly is not. And if we read through the rest of the New Testament, we don't find anything that gives to Mary the role and the position that the Roman Catholic Church ascribes to her. The scriptures just do not support it. Now, the sixth picture or the sixth event we see at the cross is Jesus' thirst. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Now, Jesus' request was probably not due to his actual physical thirst, but what John notes here is that everything has taken place exactly according to God's perfect will with the remainder of one prophecy that has yet been fulfilled. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. So the they here is not identified. It could have been the Roman soldiers. It could have been civilians under the charge of the Roman soldiers. What we do know is that these men had given to Jesus through virtue of this hyssop, which is a very fibrous kind of a branch. And they brought it up to him and gave him a drink of this sour wine. It was not sympathy. It was not compassion. It was likely going to extend the suffering of death. But Jesus, knowing that this prophecy needed to be fulfilled, asks for a drink because he is thirsty. Psalm 69, 21 says, again, a part of a messianic 
illusion. He says, they, get, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So this was not the same drink that Jesus was earlier offered when he was on the cross. That drink was mixed with gall. It was wine and gall, and that would deaden his pain. He refused that, but here he takes the sour wine in an, in an effort to fulfill the final piece of scripture that needed to be, a final piece of prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. So this sour wine was cheap wine. It was plentiful, and that's what the Roman soldiers drank. It had gone beyond the point of fermentation. It was likely almost rancid, and it would be very, very similar to our modern-day vinegar, a very cheap drink, but this is what Jesus was given when he said on the cross, I am thirsty. The last picture that we have here of the cross is Jesus' shout of victory. Verse 30, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Matthew and Mark record that he shouted with a loud voice, It is finished. It is a voice of triumph. It is a shout of victory. The Greek word there is tetelestai. It's a financial term that means it is paid in full. What Jesus means is the work is done. Sin has been atoned for. The mission is completed. Satan has been defeated and is rendered powerless. The objective has been accomplished. Every righteous law has been satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin has been appeased and every prophecy has been fulfilled. And it is at this point that Jesus bows his head and willingly gives up his spirit. Now Matthew tells us that when Jesus does this, it is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And it is about 3 o'clock in the afternoon that the priests are now preparing the Passover lamb and slaughtering it as the Passover sacrifice. The temple veil is torn in two. God's eternal plan of redemption is completed. And the Son of God has become the sacrificial lamb to pay the penalty for our sin. It is an old and a familiar story. Sadly, it is told and repeated in such familiar terms that people often will shrug their shoulders with a willing, nonchalant recognition of its accuracy, but stop short of ever really coming to terms with what it means. If someone were to die in your place, if you stood before a firing squad and you were blindfolded and you were fastened to the wall and the soldiers were in front of you and you heard the guns cock and you heard the executioner shout, ready, aim, and at the last second someone came in and said, no, stop, I will take his place. How indebted would you feel to that individual who was going to die in your place? How much more gratitude should we possess knowing that this is exactly what the Son of God did so that you and I could be presentable to God?
Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what He has done. Becoming the atoning sacrifice, taking upon Himself my sin, my guilt, my condemnation, so that I could be forgiven and through faith be presented to the Father with the spotless righteousness of the one who has died in my place. Father, how we pray that you would drill well beyond the callous hearts and the hardened minds, the stiff necks that we possess as it relates to this familiar account, but that we would very personally come to terms with what it means that we would see in this brutal and gruesome death the expression of love that secures our redemption by faith through the finished work of Jesus. God, I pray that it would recapture our heart's affection in such a way that we couldn't imagine living another day without prioritizing the supremacy of your love in our lives. God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you draw us to yourselves? Would you create within us a desire to lay down the sin that we so easily pick up and allow to be in our life? Would we lay down our lack of faith and our mistrust and just willingly follow you, knowing that you're worthy? God, we pray that through the work of your Spirit, you would do in us what you desire to do and what we need for you to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing.